The subject that we're going to talk about today that may make us a little uncomfortable is the subject of obedience. Two weeks ago, the scripture helped us to see, as we looked at the life of Moses, that God is not limited in his calling upon our lives by our past or even our past mistakes. Moses was a murderer, tried to cover this up, fled out into the desert, and yet God still found him and called him in spite of these past challenges. Last week, we looked at the story from Moses' life of when God called him from the burning bush, and we were reminded that while we may struggle with insecurities, while we may have doubts about ourselves and, and, and question uh, whether God can actually use us, it does not matter what we think about ourselves. In fact, it is what God thinks of us and how God sees us. And God sees us in a totally different light than we oftentimes see ourselves. Those two topics we like because they are affirming and encouraging. But today as we talk about obedience, we have to admit that most of us do not like the topic of obedience quite as much. Not because we all plan to be uh, disobedient and not because we uh, necessarily enjoy being disobedient, at least hopefully not most of us, but because a lot of us struggle with being told that we need to be obedient or being challenged to be more obedient or to examine our own lives to see if we are being obedient to all things related to God. But, but obedience is a part of responding to God's mission upon our lives. Obedience is a mark, is a, is a, is a picture of people that are living on mission and in relationship with Jesus. So please open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we've been there. Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 4. And our verses this morning, as we're read by Brandon, are verses 18 through 26. I'm not going to read them all again since Brandon already did that. But Moses submits to God. This is what we've seen the last few weeks. Moses submits to God's mission for his life and now goes back to his father-in-law and does what is culturally respectful. He asks his father-in-law if he can go to Egypt. He's not quite fully uh, transparent upon the reason why he's going back to Egypt. He says to his father-in-law so that he can see his family. He doesn't say it's because of God's call. Maybe he's a little still unsure about why God would call him to this, but Jethro gives him permission to go back to Egypt. Then in verses 19 and 20, God reassures Moses. He, 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 once again, he reassures Moses of his safety from those individuals that were seeking his life previously. He says, all the men of Egypt that were trying to get you, they are all dead, including the Pharaoh that was trying to get you. And so Moses sets out on his journey with his wife and his sons. That's verses 19 and 20. Verses 21 through 23, God gives Moses this, this prophetic picture of how things are going to play out in Egypt, how, how Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened and how God is going to respond to that. This is verses 18 through 23. And then in verse 24, suddenly the scriptures take what I believe is one of the most awkward turns in the Bible, one of the most awkward turns in all the Bible. The story reminds us, this, what comes next in the story reminds us how unsettling the Old Testament sometimes can be to our 21st century sensibilities. So here's what verse 24 says. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him 
and sought to kill him. This is speaking of Moses. The Lord sought to kill Moses. If you've been following along with our journey in Exodus, and we've been talking about Exodus for the last four weeks, if you've been following along in that journey uh, through Exodus, this seems totally out of place. God saves baby Moses in a basket in the, in the Nile River. Draws him, he's drawn out of the river and, and rescued. Not only is he rescued, but he's rescued by, by Pharaoh's daughter herself. The Pharaoh who, who, who prescribed that, that this boy, this Jewish boy, this Hebrew boy should be killed, now is saved by Pharaoh's own family. He's raised, protected, and secure in the house of Pharaoh. When, when Moses, in a, in, a, in, a, in a fit of passion, takes another human being's life, God doesn't immediately strike him dead in that moment. But we see that God forgives, that God gives him grace and forgives him and, and still calls him into his mission. We see God being very patient with Moses as, as Moses is arguing with God and saying, no, I can't go, no, I can't go, no, I can't go. And God very patiently is laboring with him. Yes, you can, and here's the reason why. Yes, you can, and here's the reason why. We see this, this patience. God has just now reassured Moses that he's safe because all the people in Egypt that wanted to kill him are gone. He's told them this is how this is all going to play out and then suddenly, just like that, the Bible tells us that Moses is met on the way to Egypt and that it is actually God who has protected him all these years that is now seeking his life. It's a very weird story. It's an awkward turn. For what reason is God seeking to take his life? Verse 25 tells us this. Then Sipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What happened here? Some believe that Moses must have been suddenly struck with some sort of illness. That Zipporah observed uh, uh, him suddenly struck with some illness and he was, he was near death. She sensed that, that he was near death. And Zipporah discerned in this moment, that this was not a result of just a natural occurrence. This was not a, a, uh, just a coincidence or a fluke, but, but that there was a divine judgment upon Moses in this moment. How she fully discerned discern this, we do not know, but, but she discerned this, that, that something that Moses was about to die, and it was not because of just natural circumstances, but there was a divine aspect to this. We presume this based upon what she did after this that she circumcised her son. I think it would be safe for us to presume that Moses and Zipporah must have discussed the importance of circumcision of their son at some point in their history for her to know that this was part of what needed to take place. And that in that discussion between husband and wife, they had decided that this ritual was not necessary for them to carry out. That this was a decision that they had decided, you know what, this is not important at this time, we don't need to do this. And so they neglected that ritual that God had asked them to be a part of. And now in this moment, possibly through the prompting of the Holy Spirit of God, she realizes this is what needs to take place. And she circumcises their son and makes the following, and then we read the following. So he, verse 26, that is the Lord, let Moses alone. And then Zipporah calls Moses I do not believe in anger, 
but I actually believe she, it's a recognition that Moses' sin has been covered by shed blood. She calls him a bridegroom of blood. And just like that, the story is over. There's no transitional sentence here that says, and Moses learned whatever, and they lived happily ever after. No, the very next line is, and God said to Aaron, now go out and meet your brother Moses. You're going to be safe. Jethro, can we go? Yes, you can go. We're on our way. Moses, you're going to be safe. All the people that want to kill you are gone. Here's how it's going to play out. Here's the prophetic view of what's going to take place. All these things are happening. Moses is on his way. I'm going to kill you. Circumcision. Okay, everything's good again. Let's move on. I mean, it's an awkward, awkward story. And it turns quickly and turns back just as quickly. Three verses that we may be tempted. These are three verses that we may be tempted to ignore because they seem random. They are definitely odd. And honestly, most, most of us don't like to think about God as this punishing God. But this event becomes important if we understand it in its proper light. And for that proper light, let us jump to the New Testament, to John chapter 14, to the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 15. John four, chapter 14 and verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, and this is a, a scripture that, that probably many of you have memorized. I know it was on the memorization list for my sons this year, one of my boys, I don't remember which one, for their schooling. But John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my what? Commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is making this statement to his followers. He is talking to his disciples. He is not talking to unbelievers, but to believers, people who have said, we are followers of you, Jesus. And Jesus tells them, as followers of me, as a symbol of your love for me, then keep my commandments. This is therefore a prescriptive statement. I mean, this is therefore a descriptive statement, not a prescriptive statement. Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He is not saying to, to these individuals, if you want to follow me, then first you have to keep my commandments. No, he's talking to people who are already following him, and he's saying, now as followers of me, of people who, who say they love me, now this is a description of you, you will keep my commandments. It is a description. Commandment keeping, obedience, is a description of those that love and follow Jesus. Obedience is an outflow of following and loving Jesus. We should, we should remind ourselves of that sometimes because sometimes we can look out at the world and we can be very condemning of what people are not doing in obedience to God or, or we, we may tell somebody that they need to live better. But really, when we read the text about obedience in Scripture, almost always it is about God or the prophets or Jesus speaking to those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. You're now my followers. This is then how you should live. This is a description then of how you should live. So obedience is to be an outflow, outflow of following Jesus. That is one idea that we should keep in mind as we read the story, this interesting story of Moses, Zipporah, and their son. A second idea also from the New Testament, is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses three 
to 11. You can turn there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 11. Go to the T, brothers, and then Philemon, the redheaded stepchild. Don't feel bad about that, redheads. Just the way I remember this. Someone asked me the other day, how do you remember where these books of the Bible are at? I go, the T brothers, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, and then I know Hebrews is coming somewhere in there, and there's a redhead stepchild between those brothers. It's like the one kid that didn't get the T name. Any of you have that? Everyone else has it starts with the same letter, and then that one kid has some weird name, and that's Philemon. And then Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. And the Bible says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted, verse 4, to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as and as we and, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peacefulness, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's break this text down really quick to understand it in the context of Moses. The writer of Hebrews is obviously speaking about discipline. He's relating discipline that we receive from God to the discipline that parents give towards their children. And a couple key things I take out of this text. One is, is that God does discipline. I know that we don't like to hear that, and I know that we shy away from that in some ways, and we try to get away from that, but, but you cannot argue with this. You can argue with this text, but if you want to argue with the Bible, that's, that's your business. But, but if we're going to believe the scriptures, then we see clearly that God does at times discipline. We also see that discipline is a symbol that we are children of God. So if we're under discipline at times, we should rejoice rather than being sorrowful about that because that means that we are children of God. The lack of discipline actually is a sign that we are not children of God. This is clear in verse 8. We should all understand this. We should all understand this simply as parents and as, as people that observe other children. Don't raise your hands because you may watch these children this week. But have any of you ever been watching someone else's kids or spending time with someone else's kids and those kids do something and you think in your brain, man, if those were my kids, their backside might be a little bit warmer. Or, well, maybe you don't, none of you spank anymore, I don't know. But whatever it may be, we've all thought that. We've all had those moments where we thought that about someone else's kids, but we don't Discipline the same way that we would discipline our own because what? They are not our children. So we don't discipline them. Discipline is, a, is in the right format, in the right context, in the right way, done in the right way, is a testimony that, that they are our children. Sec, a third thing that we learn about this. The purpose of discipline is to lead us back into holiness and right living. 
The purpose of discipline is to lead us back into holiness and right living. That is what discipline is for. And finally, we should always remember this if we become uncomfortable about the idea of God's discipline. Verse three asks us, in the midst of this statement on discipline, it asks us to remember that if we become uncomfortable with the idea of God's discipline, it asks us to remember who endured the ultimate discipline for us, and that was Jesus. In this whole section on, on God disciplining us, it reminds us that, that although you may be disciplined to a certain level, ultimately none of you, if you are followers of Jesus, if you are children of Jesus, will receive the ultimate discipline you deserve because that is a discipline Jesus accepted upon himself when he died for us the second death and endured the cross. Yes, you may endure some discipline, but, but ultimately, the, the eternal discipline that you as a sinner, that we as sinners deserve, you do not have to endure because Jesus endured it for you. Two things to keep in mind. Obedience is an outflow of following Jesus. And that God, at times, does discipline us in order to bring us back into alignment with what is best for us, for eternal value. The Bible said that, that parents discipline as they seem is best. I like that the, the Bible throws in that word as they, they, that they seem is best. It means parents, sometimes we might not always be right in our discipline. And it's good for us to be humble about that and be willing to apologize to our children when we're not correct in that. But God is always right in his discipline. And he says they discipline for a time as they seem as best, but I discipline so that it brings eternal value. These are two things to remember as we look at the story of Moses from Exodus chapter four, which is a living example of the idea that as followers of Jesus, the expectation is that we are to obey, not to earn our salvation, but as evidence that we are on Jesus's mission. But here's the truth. You know this and I know this. Sometimes we disobey. Just like our kids do, just like these young people I'm sure at times disobey their parents, sometimes we disobey. And when we do, the Lord will at times do things in our lives to help us move back into lives of holiness. So why was Moses being disobedient by not circumcising his son? In the book of Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White uses the term in describing uh, Moses' uh, and Zipporah's lack of circumcision of their boy as an act that Moses disregarded, an act that he neglected to perform for his youngest son. You see, Moses had been raised in a culture where circumcision was no longer viewed as necessary or important. Why do I say that? We say that because we see in the book of Joshua chapter five that, that when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt that none of the men were circumcised and they all had to be circumcised. But then once they were circumcised, they didn't see any need for this to continue on in the next generations. And so right before they get into the promised land, uh, God comes to Joshua and says, all the generations that have been born since the Exodus need to be circumcised. They have neglected this thing that I have called you to do. 
They had been influenced by their culture. The men in Egypt weren't circumcised. They come out of Egypt. Moses says, you need to do this. They say, okay, we'll do it. They, they get circumcised, but, but then they, they don't see the importance of it. They don't see it as necessary. They don't see it as relevant for where they're at in their life. And so they neglect this ritual, this, this calling that God has put upon them. And they refuse to continue doing this. And so their children are born, their sons are born. And it, with each son that's born, they neglect this. And then God has them, all these generations, circumcised right before they enter into the promised land. And Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9 says this, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What was the reproach? The reproach was the lack of circumcision, but I would say even deeper than that, the reproach was their neglect of God's counsel. This belief that circumcision was no longer important to God, therefore the neglect of honoring this directive of God, a directive God gave to Abraham generations before. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant of the commitment between me and you. Circumcision was a sign of the commitment between God and his people it wasn't to get into relationship with God it's because Abraham was already in relationship with God and God says as a as a sign of the relationship and the commitment that we have made to one another circumcision is the act I ask you to perform now in the New Testament of course we are taught that 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 Jesus did away with circumcision that said it was no longer relevant and it's not something that we even talk about anymore you don't have people that walk up to you and, and say, hey, let's talk about circumcision. At least I hope you don't. If you do, you might want to consider those friends and the conversations that you're having with them. But most of us don't go up and have that conversation with people. In, in Bible times, though, this was a very relevant thing. In fact, some people were known as the circumcised crowd, and the, and the Gentiles were known as the uncircumcised. People knew somehow about this whole endeavor. But Jesus tells us it's no longer significant, but in the days of Moses, it still mattered. The covenant of circumcision still stood, but Moses and so many others had neglected it and disregarded it. They had been raised in a culture where it was seen as no longer necessary, and they embraced the culture of Egypt over and above God's truth. Therefore, when I read the story of Moses and Zipporah and their uncircumcised son, here is what I think of. The truths God has laid out in this book, in these scriptures, matter. They matter. Whether we think they matter, whether our culture thinks they matter, whether our feelings and our desires think they matter, or our government thinks they matter, or our friends think they matter, the truths in God's book matter until God says they no longer matter. And then I have to ask myself this question. Are there any beliefs? Are there any actions? Are there any practices that I have in my life? Are there any beliefs or actions or practices that you have in your life? that are not based upon this book? And in fact, are there, are there any beliefs or actions or, or, or desires that you have that, that not only aren't based upon this book, but they actually go against 
what God has taught us in this book? Are there beliefs or actions or practices or desires that are based upon what you feel is right? Well, I feel better about this, and so I think God's okay with this. Are there beliefs and actions and desires that you, that you participate in that are, that are based on what feels comfortable to you within the context of our society? Well, if I go this way, then people are going to think I'm weird. People are going to think I'm strange. I don't want, people are going to think I'm, I'm unkind. I don't want it to be that way. Are there beliefs or actions or desires that you have that are based on what feels just to you? Are there things that you just want to do and you know they go against God and you say, you know what, I think I'm a good person and so God's going to be okay with it. The story of Moses and Zipporah and their son call me to check my beliefs and to understand that God's truth and God's ways and God's ideas must move ahead of my wants, my culture, my society, my feelings, my friends, my actions. God's word is to be the directing authority of my life. And when this doesn't happen, I've stepped outside of God's will and I open myself up to discipline. To discipline. A discipline that, as Hebrew teaches me, for a moment seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. I have yet in my life to experience any type of discipline that did not seem painful. There was one moment when I thought I had. I was maybe about eight years old, I think, nine or eight or nine years old. And I had been playing baseball, throwing the ball up, running and diving on the couch and catching it. Throwing the ball up, running, diving on the couch and catching it. We lived in a small house in Southern California and it wasn't a very big room, and it was, I don't know why I wasn't outside doing this, but I, I enjoyed, and I would say, oh, he hits a deep bomb, oh, and I run back, and I dive on the couch and catch this, and my mom walks in, and she said to me, Chad, uh, stop that. You're going to break something. It was a hard ball. It wasn't a softball. It was a hard baseball, my glove. I said, okay, okay. She, she goes, don't do it again. You're going to break something. Well, I'm a really good baseball player, so of course I don't listen to my mom. She walks out of the room. I throw the ball up a couple more times, and one time I dive, and it bounces right off the very tip of my glove. And it, I don't know how it had the force to do it, but it bounces off the tip of my glove, and probably because we lived in a really small and not very expensive house with single-pane windows, but man, it went right through that window, that front window. The big window in the front room. Boom, right through that window. And my mom comes in and she goes, didn't I tell you? And my mom spanks me. And know what I discovered? It didn't hurt me anymore. And I thought, man, this discipline was the best discipline I ever got. And then she said, when your father gets home, <laughs> lesson to all you kids, even if it doesn't hurt, pretend. <laughs> Seriously, though, my dad got home and I discovered that no matter what, Discipline is painful. Discipline 
is painful. But you know something? I've never broken a window with a ball again in my life. That's the point of discipline, to, 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 to teach us, to bring us back into right alignment with things. Discipline can seem painful. And sometimes we, are, we, we put ourselves in a, in a position outside of God's will and things start happening and we, and we wonder maybe why this is happening. And sometimes there's things that are just going on in this world and there's just things that we suffer. But, but sometimes we need to be like Sephora and discern. Maybe it's because I've stepped outside of God's will. And God is trying to bring me back into alignment so that what I can experience eternally is the peaceful fruit of his joy and righteousness. This is part of God's calling upon our lives. If I could sum up this this short three-part series within our larger look at the book of Exodus, I would say it like this. The Lord's calling is greater than our past failings. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter who you are, when you surrender to God, God can can still do amazing things with you, just as he did with the murderer Moses, the adulterer and murderer David. Just as he did with, with, with the uh, fornicator, Samson. Just as he did with, with the denier, Peter. He can do amazing things. Just as he did with the, the murderer and the persecutor of Saul and Paul. He can do amazing things with our lives. No matter what our past feelings are. The second thing in this little three-part series, is that the Lord's calling is able to overcome all of my insecurities, all of your insecurities, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you think, man, I'm not good enough, I'm not prepared for this mission, I, I can't do this, why would Jesus call me to this? It doesn't matter what you think about yourself, it matters that, that Jesus sees you and sees someone who is capable and who is able. Not by your power or by your might, but because of his grace and his mercy and his calling. But the third thing I see is that the Lord's calling does call us to obedience to God's truth over everything else. Obedience to God's truth over everything else. Not as a way to get into the mission of God. Not as a way to earn God's love or God's blessing. Remember, Moses is on the journey. He's on the mission. And God says, wait a second. You're on my mission now. You're representing me now. I'm calling you to total Surrender and total allegiance to me. And so God calls all of us that say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. As we walk out these doors and we profess to the world around us, we are followers of Jesus. God calls us then to live in such a manner that that testimony is true before the world. That that testimony is right before the world. The Lord's calling to obedience can be painful But in the end, it will result in eternal joy.